Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hello and good day. Good day to you, madam. You know, in the last episode, uh, I talked about the Lykoff family. So interesting. The hermits that lived in the Siberian wilderness uh, 40 years without contact. and uh, Unbelievable. We got an update. Uh, somebody sent me a link to an article or sent it to us at curator at theboxofoddities.com. How the story ended, of course, with Agafia just staying there and living by herself. In 2016, she was airlifted uh, to a hospital by a helicopter because she had uh, cartilage deterioration condition. So she agreed to be airlifted out and she received emergency medical treatment oh, wow. and, uh, and then they took her back in. Oh, wow. So that's pretty cool. See, when I, it, the end of that story to me was like, okay, so... Um, they are flying out, right? And it shows Agafia, and she's standing there in uh, her long brown cardigan sweater, right. uh, you know, and and waving to the the people. And then she puts her hand down slowly as the wind as from the, the propellers yep. was blowing her dress. And, and then it pans out and shows her like standing alone in front of that little little hut that they'd built and 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 then credits roll that's exactly how i pictured it too mm. and i guess it wasn't far from the truth mm. but anyway that's uh that's the latest update on the uh, Lykov family and i was thinking you know why what was it that really attracted me to this story and i think it reminded me a lot of the stories that you would hear about soldiers from world war ii that uh we're fighting in the jungles in the South Pacific, for example, mm -hmm. and we're isolated there. Didn't even realize, you know, that the war was over and, and they were discovered like 25, 30 years after the war was over and they were still hiding from yeah. planes coming over. Right. And, and then that reminded me of this story. World War Two. In the summer of 1942, it was the beginning of what became the Lost Ghost Battlefield. Oh, 
Japanese forces had landed on uh, the northern coast of Papua New Guinea, around Buna or Gona, that area. Now, they had been trying to take a strategic position called uh, Port Moresby. This was an area that they wanted, the Japanese wanted to control. Strategery. 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 And they had failed to take it by sea, in the Battle of the Coral Sea in May. So their idea was, we're going to come in from the north, mm-hmm. and we're going to trek over land in what is called the uh, Kokoda Track, and get to Port Moresby on the south shore that way. Okay. They continued to amass troops on the northern coastline. And to defend the position of Port Moresby, that task was handed to the Australian army. The Australians were fighting the Japanese in Papua New Guinea along the Kokoda Track. There were several uh, skirmishes during that summer, and nothing decisive took place until the afternoon of uh, October 22nd. Apparently, uh, the battalion commanders for the Australian Army, a guy named Lloyd, he ordered a frontal attack on the Japanese in their lower position, and this began a really bloody exchange. Australian troops encountered uh, strong Japanese positions, with fighting continuing for six days. Uphill attacks by soldiers on the 21st Battalion. They made little progress against uh, the Japanese resistance, according to Australian Geographic. The 23rd Battalion managed to outflank the Japanese position. The Japanese defenders broke positions and fled. It was the single most costly clash of the uh, Kokoda campaign, although different sources cite different casualty figures. Mm -hmm. It's estimated that about 72 Australians were killed, 154 wounded, uh, while the Japanese lost 64 and 70 were wounded. The total battlefield casualties throughout the period of uh, the 12th to the 28th of October amounted to about 412 Australians killed or wounded and about 244 Japanese. After the war, the location was totally forgotten. No one could remember where it was. And the local population had an idea of where it was, Somewhere in the jungle, obviously, Mm -hmm, but they kept away from it because they believed it was haunted by spirits of the dead soldiers. It was near an area called uh, Eora Creek, and that was later described by the Sunday Telegraph journalist uh, Barclay Crawford as the bloodiest, most significant battle of the Australian Army's campaign to retake the Kokoda Track. After the battle, those who survived, of course, left. They never went back for their supplies. They never went back for their transportation. They just left the island. And it was sparsely populated in that area. It was was very densely forested. I mean, it's a thick, thick jungle there. So the jungle very quickly overtook the area. As it will. As it will. Because why? Nature finds a way. Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Now, the local population, of course, uh, knew of the battle, Mm -hmm. and there are many who are still alive today that remember it firsthand, but they weren't there on the battlefield. They heard it off in the distance somewhere in the middle of the jungle. Sure. It was a very small, compact area along the trail uh, beside a creek. Sure. Local legend began to take over. The local people, they kept away from anywhere near where this battlefield was, they never went there. And again, they thought it was haunted, haunted, a haunted battlefield. So over the decades, people forgot where it was. They didn't know where it was. There was no official marking on any map anywhere where this battlefield was. Okay. The only markings, I guess, would be the 
remnants of the of the, the of battle the, itself. Now, this mystery which is really rude. Yeah, I would when th- you yeah. think about it. Yeah. There were, weren't neither of them were in their homeland. No. And they were just like, well, we'll just leave this here for yeah. you. We got a boat to catch. Nah, you clean it up. So this is something that has really been an obsession for a guy, an army captain from Australia named Brian Freeman. He's an expert on the Kokoda Trail. Now, the Kokoda Trail itself is a 60-mile trek through rugged mountain, mountainous country, or it was, Mm -hmm. and right through the rainforest of the island. Um, The jungle, of course, has more than reclaimed where the Battle of Eora Creek was. Freeman spent years researching old battle maps, uh, seeking out and finding diaries of people from that period of time that had fought in and near that area. He poured over the maps, he poured over the diaries in an attempt to discover where the elusive site was. And ultimately, he gained the trust of the local Alola people who lived close to where the battlefield was supposed to be. And he was assisted by these people. Originally, they did not want to help him because they didn't want to go anywhere near this right, place. Right, they don't want to disturb the, the spirits. But he told them there are probably still soldiers out there and they need to be taken home and so the villagers thought yes this is good right yes so on april 23rd in 2010 he made his inaugural trek through an area that he thought showed potential as to where the battlefield might be located quote on our inaugural trek we were hoping to find the remnants of makeshift Japanese hospital and potentially maybe relics of guns and ammunition I never anticipated that we would find war dead. He said, it was as if time stood still. Oh, so he didn't know that everything had just been left there? No. He just was curious about the fact that nobody remembered where the battlefield was. Right. And, oh, wow. So, what a treasure. Yeah. That's remarkable. That's a time capsule? It kind of is. It kind of is. He said it was as if time stood still. Quote, we found ammunition running out in a line from the rifle that was dropped as the Japanese advanced to the rear. Oh, wow. He said extensive research on battle maps and diaries led them to believe that the Japanese had a medical facility in the area during the Japanese advance, and its location had remained a mystery until now. This is according to Japan Times and Axis and Allies. They found, you know, those kidney-shaped medical dishes that you yeah. often see? They found some of those That's lying around. That's where you put the bits in. The bits. It's the bit pot. And that pointed to evidence that the find was indeed the site of a Japanese hospital. Wow. They found the presence of large rectangular pits that they soon discovered were rifle pits. And that also indicated a location significant for the Japanese defensive position. I'm sorry, real quick, just gonna just gonna leap in here. By rifle pit, do you mean a pit that was dug so people could stand yeah. in it and shoot? Yes. With being protected, but okay. Uh-huh. Got it. Rifle pit. <clears throat> so they totally know what that means. Yeah. So they find like machine guns still set up on the tripods. What? With ammo belts still coming out of them. All rusted and stuff, of course. Wow. Near this rifle pit. And then they travel on just a few feet to where a large tree was. And leaning up against the tree was the skeleton of a Japanese soldier 
still wearing his helmet and shreds of his army uniform. His boots were still on. Upright? Sitting upright. Unreal. Against the tree. 70 years after he died in battle. Whoa. They proceeded uh, to investigate with metal detectors. They found rifles, ammunition, helmets of both the Australian and the Japanese soldiers, which illustrated that uh, this particular location was, as I said before, a very significant Japanese defensive position. You can see the positions held on both sides. You can actually see where they were when the fighting was. It is a time capsule. You can see where they treated their wounded. You can see the Australian advance and ultimately the casualties, he said. The Lost Battlefield Trust has been set up to uh, restore the battlefield and the Japanese field hospital to the condition they were 70 some odd years ago. Whoa. And they continue to work with the local uh, villagers. They want to leave the relics where they are, but restore the battlefield to what it looked like similarly 70 years ago. Minus the dead people. Right. They want to preserve the site in its current pristine condition. The priority, he said, is, quote, to identify and repatriate the fallen soldiers and to honor their memory by ensuring all elements remain intact and untouched. Meanwhile, the the Papua New Guinea people are like, yes, Yes. absolutely. Do that. Take them away. Thank you. Come clean up your mess, you guys. And while they were, I mean, they did find uh, a a couple of Japanese soldiers' remains, and they were taken back to their homeland. There were only five Australian soldiers that were MIA after that battle, that they didn't have record of where they were. Okay. So while they were metal detecting in and around the area, they were were poking around with sticks and shovels, and they found... An Australian soldier's remains buried a couple of feet down, and they said that he had he still had his Australian issue boots on. There were buttons from the Australian uniform lying about. There were a few Australian coins in the grave. Sure. It was obvious it was an Australian foot soldier. They're trying to determine who this guy is, and based on you know DNA testing, it's only been seventy years, and they have a list of five people that are missing. So they'll they'll probably be able to determine who this person is and send him back to his family, and hopefully they'll be able to find the rest of them too. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. But there were like bodies kind of all about, yeah, bits and pieces. Okay. Bits and pieces. Okay. Uh, mostly Japanese is what they found initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for example, the full skeleton sitting up against the tree with his helmet right. still on and his boots. And but do, do they know who that guy was? And were they able to, to get that guy back to? My understanding is yes. They were able to uh, okay. get the remains back to their family members. Jeez oh, and- Louise. That must be really um, fascinating and a little... Um, I don't know, a little overwhelming. It's almost like you're walking into the past and it's a back to the future ghostville kind of situation. No, it's like, it's like you're, okay. So if you, if there was a fight and eh, it must've been weird. (laughs) I would think so. This is a battlefield that has not been seen by human eyes for over 70 years and they finally discover it 
And just the idea of them walking into this area and knowing that they were the first people to lay eyes on this site since the troops retreated Mm. has got to be just an awesome, overwhelming feeling. You must be able to feel the spirits there. Right. It makes me think of like when in movies you come across a pirate's cave, you know, and Mm. the pirate skeleton is yeah. still there protecting its booty and you're you know it's it feels very goonies like to me it does feel very goonies like <laughs> minus the treasure minus the treasure also i found a uh flight from bangor to papua new guinea for eighteen hundred dollars really and i mean they normally are like three thousand so <laughs> you want to go to papua new guinea yeah huh? see your people and listen, it's like less than one percent. Have a nice meal. Stop! It's that's not even a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. Cats descended from cannibals. That's what ancestry says. Anyway, mm-hmm. I thought that might have been a nice companion piece to the uh, the Lykov story because my brain works that way. Sure. You know how you think of one thing and then it makes you think of something else and constantly, then, and then that leads to something it else. Is my and pretty life. soon. Just Why am I thinking about squirrels on bicycles? Mm-hmm. Why? Oh, okay. Yeah, and you start retrace. Yeah. So that the whole the Lykoff thing yeah. led 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 me originated from the uh, yep. the Brussels sprouts recipe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Banjo found your story riveting. Mm-hmm. It's the part of the podcast that's been told it looks like child star Mason Reese and takes it as a compliment. This is That Thing in the Middle. Here's a collection of random weird stuff from the interwebs. Number five, there are more fake pink flamingos on Earth than real ones. Also, there there are more lawn gnomes than there are real gnomes. Oh, noted. noted. Mm, yeah. Number four, Shakespeare created the name Jessica. Just so you know. You just made that name up? Yep. So Jessica was not even a real name until Shakespeare made it up. Okay. Right. All right. In 1923, jockey Frank Hayes won a race in New York despite being dead. Uh, he suffered a heart attack mid-race but stayed on the horse long enough to cross the finish line. That is following through. Number two. The man said to have the longest beard died in 1567 after tripping on his beard while escaping from a fire. Sad. How big is the universe? Big. There are at least 70 sextillion stars. That would be a billion trillion stars. In other words, there are 10 stars for every grain of sand on Earth. Wow. And you're mad because you can't find your car keys. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off 
plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. You're listening to The Box of Oddities. Hang on, we just got a text. Not sure we made a... Okay, that can wait. This is the Box of Oddities. All right, so what do we have? I'm so excited. Tell me a story. (laughs) Weave me a tale, if you will. All right, today I want to tell you about Nancy Hazel. Okay. Nancy Hazel is known by a lot of different names, Um, but as a child, she got the nickname Nanny. Later, uh, she got some different nicknames, but we're just going to call her Nanny for now. Nanny it is. Nanny was born in November of 1905. She was born in uh, Blue Mountain, Alabama, which is now part of Anniston, Alabama. And her parents, Nancy, nope, Nancy's her name but I've already started calling her Nanny, so I got confused. Her parents were Lou and James Hazel. So James Hazel ruled his family with an iron fist. He was very domineering, very strict, and abusive. Um, Instead of going to school, all five of Jim and Lou's children stayed home to work on the family farm and tend to uh, the animals, do the chores, that kind of thing. Nanny's father forbade the Hazel sisters from wearing makeup or attractive clothing. Uh, he also forbade them from going to dances and other social events. Sure. They just weren't allowed to do things. They were just supposed to stay home and take care of the farm. A very strict, oppressive environment. Absolutely. Which wasn't that unusual for those times, especially 
rural families of the day. Yeah, and because of this, I mean, there wasn't a lot of education in their lives. The reading material that Nanny really uh, latched onto was like, um, romance novels. Her mom read them and she loved them and she became obsessed with like the Lonely Hearts column in the newspaper. Oh, yeah, right. And um, at the age of seven, the family goes to visit other members of their family on a train and Nanny hit her head on a metal bar. As the train stopped suddenly, um, she was thrown forward into the seat in front of her and uh, she ended up having headaches for a long time. She had mood changes. Um, there were some concerns that she had seriously injured uh, her brain. But um, overall, she was still functioning. She was still taking care of the farm. That's so no that, worries, yeah, right? Yeah, that's all that matters. As long as the hogs are getting slopped, it doesn't matter if your noggin is damaged. That's right. So it's 1921, and Nanny went to work at the Linen Thread Company in nearby Anniston, where she met Charles Charlie Braggs at the age of 16. So Braggs wooed Nanny and met with the approval of her father, and Nanny ended up marrying Braggs within months and moved in with him and his mother. So she's 16. Yeah. She marries this dude, moves in with him and his mother, and he is just like Nanny's father. Um, the the family home was not a warm one, let's say. It's interesting how those patterns tend to repeat themselves. Mm, over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, with shocking and very upsetting regularity. The marriage did produce four daughters from 1923 to 1927. Nanny started drinking uh, pretty heavily, and her casual smoking habit became a pretty heavy addiction as well. Both unhappy partners suspected each other, uh, quite rightly, of infidelity. And the uh, Braggs, Charlie, often disappeared for days on end. This is turning into a perfect storm. We start with a head injury. Mm Mm-hmm. Throw in addiction and uh, yeah, and, and uh, abu- unhappy marriage, abusive uh, abusive relationship. Yeah, okay. Oh yeah, we're getting to the good stuff now, aren't we? You see where we're going? With I this. do, I do. It is not good stuff. It is awful stuff. So it's 1927, and they have four children. The couple lose their two middle-aged children uh, to suspected food poisoning. Hmm. Soon after, Braggs took their firstborn daughter, Melvina, and left newborn Florine behind with Nanny. After he took off, his mom died shortly after, and Nanny took a job in a cotton mill to support her and uh, Florine. Eventually, Braggs came back, uh, but he had a new lady, Uh and he was like, we're getting divorced, and bye. The two did divorce in 1928. Nanny took her two children and moved back in with her parents. Bragg maintained that he left Nanny because he was afraid of her. Uh-huh. Now, in all of the writings, uh, it talks about how the he was abusive, he was an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he's saying throughout this whole thing that he was afraid of Nanny. Okay, okay. Soon, Nanny took to the Lonely Hearts section of the newspaper As we know, she loves it, can't get enough, and she found who would become her second husband, Robert Franklin Harrelson. 
They met and married in 1929 when she was 24, and they lived together in Jacksonville. Will and they lived together in Jacksonville with Melvina and Florine. So the Lonely Hearts column was their version of swiping, right? Is that? I don't know. I don't know which direction. I don't know is which the direct- good swipe. Yeah, I'm not sure which direction is the right. Or I the want left, or- to explore very much yeah. um, because. I'm curious, but I feel like if you found Tinder on my phone, it would upset you. It would probably. Would, I would be. I would be curious. <laughs> that it, might be an option on it, Tinder. I don't know. Explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, this marriage soon went straight down the shitter as well. Uh, Harrelson was an alcoholic. He had a violent temper as well. Uh, but they were married for 16 years. During this time, Melvina gave birth. Now, Melvina is the oldest daughter of Nanny's first marriage. So Melvina has a baby. His name is Robert, and it's 1943. Two years later, Melvina had another baby, but that baby soon died very mysteriously. Uh, Melvina was uh, exhausted from labor and she was groggy from ether which had been given to her mm. during the labor and she thought she saw her visiting mother stick a hat pin into the baby's head what she asked her husband and her sister for clarification and because obviously she was like i must be confused right um and they both said that nanny told them that the baby was dead uh, but they noticed that she did have a hat pin in her hand, which seemed like a weird choice mm. for when you're holding a newborn. Sure. Yeah, there are certain things that you just don't do when you're holding a baby, like sharpen knives. You don't do that while you're holding a baby. Right. You don't You don't swaddle them in a plastic bag full of glass shards. Right. These are things you don't do. I would suspect uh, handling... Hat pins, Mm. also one of those things. Right. The doctors, though, did not give a positive explanation as to what happened. And not long after that, uh, Melvina and Nanny got into a big fight. So Melvina went to visit her father and during that time left her son Robert in Nanny's care. He mysteriously died while she was gone. (laughs) My God. The death was diagnosed as asphyxia from an unknown cause. And two months later, Nanny collected the $500 life insurance that she had taken out on Robert. Even back then, that doesn't seem like enough to motivate somebody to kill someone, even with a frontal lobe injury. I feel like she was doing it anyway. Might as well, Make Make a little bank. Yeah. Yeah. So... Hat pins are expensive. Not long. Oh, God. Not long after that, uh, following a night of drunken revelry at the end of World War II, it was alleged that Harrelson came home from a night of partying and raped Nanny that night. Uh, And it was less than a week later, on September 15th, 1945, that he died. Ah. People assumed that he died of food poisoning, uh, but it was not food poisoning. Uh, in case you have not picked up on this by now, Nanny is killing people. Yeah, I was beginning to suspect that Nanny was killing people. It was probably rat poison that uh, she put in his hidden jar of moonshine. Oh. Meanwhile, Nanny collected enough life insurance money from Harrelson's death to buy a plot of land and a house near Jacksonville. Where she could bury future victims. No, she didn't bury them. Oh, she just left them out. That's right. Here we go. 
Nanny met her third husband, Arlie Lanning, through another Lonely Hearts column while traveling in Lexington, North Carolina, and married him three days later. Okie doke. Like Harrelson, Lanning was an alcoholic. Like, why aren't my words working? Like Harrelson, Lanning was an alcoholic and a womanizer. However, in this marriage, it was Nanny who was often disappearing for months on end. Months. Months. Uh, His cause of death in 1950 was listed as heart failure, as he was a heavy drinker and there had been a flu virus in the area at that time. So he dies, and soon after, the couple's house, which had been left to Lanning's sister, burned down. So the house was to be left to Lanning's sister, but any insurance monies from a burned-down house Uh, would go to Nanny. And this is not raising red flags with law enforcement officials. Nanny quickly banked that money, and soon after, Lanning's mother died in her sleep. Uh And was there a life insurance policy for her, too? No, I don't think there was time to pull one out on her. She was just pissed. So Nanny moves back to North Carolina and in with her sister, Debbie. Debbie was not well. She was bedridden, and soon after Nanny's arrival, she died. Mm-hmm. How many does this make? We're, we're going to have a, a grand total. You're going to go gonna, to the, the dead person tote we're board? We're going to get there. Okay. Yeah. So Nanny goes back to the Lonely Hearts section and finds Richard Morton. She married Morton in 1952 in Kansas. And not long after, Morton began often venturing into town for long periods of time to be with other women. Uh-huh. Now, I will say that several of the articles that I read took note of the uh, abusive nature of the relationships that Nanny was in yeah. um, and always referenced the man's infidelity the man's alcoholism the man's abusive tendencies sure um and there was i mean outside of a couple of references of nanny drinking occasionally and you know leaving the house for days on end there wasn't a lot of mention of her being allegedly abusive right which i don't know how to take i don't know if that is the bias uh, toward females in this kind of storytelling or if it is um maybe she was just like quietly packing it all down and then unleashing it by way of murder yeah i don't know it could have been during those times too and and still today for that matter when men be when men are abused oftentimes they don't want to tell people or that's downplayed by right. family members or society in general because men are supposed to be able to take care of themselves right. blah, 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 you know that, yeah. and and it's true i mean even today you know if uh, a guy can be horribly abused in a relationship and people just kind of look at him like yeah okay right sure you know it's yeah, there is a definite double standard. And uh, what's going on in this particular situation, I don't know. Right. I don't know if it's if it's just the way that it's written or if she did just take it and then, yeah. you know. Who knows? Retaliate in, in bigger ways. Sure, sure. I don't know. Where was I? Okay. So during this time, Nanny's time is taken up 
taking care of her mother. Uh, her mom had come to live with the couple in 1953 after Nanny's dad died. And uh, within days of her arrival, uh, mom is complaining of severe stomach pains, and then she dies. No shit. Whoa. Morton, Nanny's fourth husband, uh, died a few months later after drinking a thermos full of coffee that Nanny had spiked with arsenic. Uh-huh. Okay. So how many does that make? Are we ready to go to the tote board yet? No. Oh. I mean, that's it, four husbands. Right. But lots of other... But only three murdered husbands. A lot of peripheral damage, though. For sure. So Nanny marries Samuel Doss in June of 1953 in Oklahoma. No. This is when we start to know her as Nanny Doss, which is pretty much how she's known in any article that you that you look up. It's she's called Nanny Doss. But I find it very confusing when you're referring to her before she's married a man named Doss uh, as Doss. Okay. so uh, this is when she becomes Nanny Doss. Doss was a minister who had lost his family in a tornado in Arkansas, and he disapproved of the romance novels and the stories that Nanny adored. And in September of 1953, Samuel was admitted to the hospital with flu-like symptoms. So the hospital diagnosed a severe digestive tract infection uh, when it was actually her first attempt to kill him with arsenic-laced prune cake. And that's that's especially dastardly. Dastardly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Arsenic and prunes. I love prunes. I feel like if there's one thing that I have the least amount of self-control over myself around, it's prunes. Well, my bowels, I have the least amount of control over when I'm around prunes. (laughs) I think it's just a. The knowledge that that really I shouldn't overdo it with prunes and oh, it's so, the element of danger. I guess the forbidden fruit. I want it so bad. Plus, they're delicious. <laughs> How many of these can I eat without blasting a hole in my porcelain facility? <laughs> so he was treated and released October fifth, uh, and ended up dying on the twelfth. Nanny had taken out two life insurance policies on him, and this sudden death alerted his doctor, who ordered an autopsy. And uh, originally, Nanny was like, no, we don't need an autopsy. And he was like, well, it's really important because uh, people have been getting sick lately, and we want to make sure that Mm. we rule out that, you know, he didn't die of the same thing that other people, you know, and he kind of talked her into it. And it was discovered that... Doss had arsenic in his system. It was actually enough arsenic to have killed a horse. And Nanny was promptly arrested. Thank God. Finally. I know. Under interrogation and in return for being able to keep her romance magazines, Nanny confessed to murder. (laughs) No. Yep. She confessed. You know, okay, I'm not going to be a pushover here. I want an attorney. And my romance magazines. Uh-huh. And then, fine, you can lock me up. That's great. <laughs> you have the right to your romance. You have the right to your romance, Matt. Novel? Just say novel. It's easier. You have your right. You have. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it. Cut that out. <laughs> no. No. All right. <clears throat> this led to uh, the bodies of her previous husbands being exhumed. And uh, several of them uh, did have uh, rat poisoning or arsenic in their systems. Uh, Doss confessed to killing four of her husbands, her mother, her sister, her grandson, and her mother-in-law. So how many was that? Eleven. Eleven people that she admitted to. 
these are just the ones that she confessed to killing. Right. And I, I think that there were those that were not confirmed and she didn't confess to. Like, I don't think she confessed to stabbing that baby in the head with the hat pin. Sure. Um, which I get. <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying. I there. get not confessing to it. Oh, okay. Even right. if you had confessed you, to all the other murders, you get, like you do, it's not that you get stabbing a baby in the head no. with a no, with no, a no, hat no, pin. no. Yeah. No, I'm firmly against that. Okay, I'm against hat pins. Personally. Oh well, yeah. yeah. Um, I've read that hat pins were used a lot uh, in self defense, like back oh, in the sure. day. I bet uh, that the ladies would had special hat pins that they would use to back off their bucko. Right. This ain't for you. Toot, toot. And poke him with a hat pin. Yeah, and you poked him with a hat pin. Interesting. The state of Oklahoma found her guilty of murder, and the state justice departments of North Carolina, Kansas, and Alabama also charged her with murder, but she wasn't tried outside of Oklahoma. And at 48 years old, Doss faced the electric chair, and she had the distinction of perhaps... Uh, becoming the first woman in Oklahoma history to be executed. But the state didn't pursue the death penalty due to her gender. So the fact okay. that she was a lady uh-huh. uh, means that they couldn't... They couldn't pull the switch. Right. This, this you know, equal rights, guys. Mm-hmm. And yep. I find this particularly upsetting. Um, not that I'm even, like, that pro-death penalty. It's just... I. I just that pro equality. Yeah, that's. That. <laughs> well, you believe what you believe, and Thank you. Uh, and you're consistent, and Thank I you. and I appreciate that. I am, yeah. <clears throat> so Doss was never charged with the other deaths, and ended up dying from leukemia in the hospital ward of the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in 1965. Wow. And. Uh, It is said, and there are photos of her during interrogations, during investigation proceedings, um, where she is uh, obviously gleeful. Um, It is said that she giggled her way through her confessions. Whoa. That's what a frontal lobe injury will do to you. That's how Nanny Doss uh, got the nickname the Giggling Granny. Uh, She also had the nickname the Lonely Hearts Killer. A black widow, of course. And she was also called the self-made widow by a newspaper. Huh. Interesting. So that is the story of Nanny Doss. Here is her mugshot from 1954. Oh, my God. She looks like my third grade teacher. She looks like one of my aunts. It's weird. She's got a pretty smug expression. She she does. She looks very pleased with herself. Oh, yeah. She, I mean, I'm going to share some of these photos. This is her after confessing uh, to the murders and leaving the county attorney's office on her way to jail. She looks like she's posing for a pinup. Yeah. Yeah. She's enjoying her, her moment in the limelight, isn't she? Oh, she really is. Yeah. Yeah. It's wow. gross. I don't like this nanny, Doss. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. No. Come I, right out with it. As I'm reading this these articles i couldn't believe how it was like oh and then there was this guy and then there was this guy so now she marries again and my i kept going what what (laughs) and uh i i i was not familiar with the giggling granny before reading up on on it for for this podcast so yeah it doesn't really sound like a good moniker for a serial killer the giggling granny. It sounds more like a really not interesting stripper. 
in my mind. I think it sounds very interesting. <laughs> Does it? Okay. I'm curious. Yeah. Okay. All right. Tell sure. you what. Okay. I'm with you, girl. So, yeah, that's that. We mentioned uh, we have a, a a box that you can mail stuff to now, and, and I'm getting notifications now that uh, there's stuff waiting for us, so we need to get down and pick it up. It's so glorious, and we got a message from someone who was like, oh my gosh, I, I'm sure you guys have thought of this, but if you haven't, the P.O. box of oddities, and I was <laughs> like, you are clever. Yeah. It is true. It's, it's perfect, and... Uh, seems so obvious, but it's actually not a post office box. So no, it's, it's, it wouldn't be accurate, though I do love it. Our friend Lindsay, uh, who is one of the most creative and funny people we know, uh, put this little bit together for us, thinking it might help. Despite the predictions of the future, not everything will be sent over the so-called Internet. Some things, like packages and laboratory samples, will always rely on the U.S. Postal Service the finest network of mail carriers ever assembled to deliver goods in Soviet-era white trucks with no license plates. That's why the Box of Oddities now has a secure mailing address where you can send us things too big for the Internet. You'll sleep easy knowing your parcel will be guarded around the clock in a highly secure facility staffed by some of Maine's most trustworthy hourly employees. Many are actually awake during their shifts. Just send those packages and letters to this address, The Box of Oddities, 499 Broadway, Box 164, Bangor, Maine, 04401. That's 499 Broadway, Box 164, Bangor, Maine, 04401. The Box of Oddities mailing address, the smart way to reach out and touch someone without actually touching anyone. This offer void in areas with no postal service. Packages with animals, human remains, or anything containing less of them will be refused. I love him. You want to find out more about Lindsay, uh, you can go to thatvoguy.com. He's, uh, he's a big time voiceover guy, and he's also the voice of the curator here on the Box of Oddities. But he's done like NBC News and... Animal Planet, guys. Yeah. Animal Planet. Yeah, he was the voice of Animal Planet for years. Yeah, yeah. You'll hear him on McDonald's commercials. He's 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 the real deal. And he does stuff for us. And we love him for that. We do. Well, we for do. many reasons, we love him. He's a very attractive man. He sent us a Valentine's Day card from his dog. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, right? <laughs> love you, Linz. The Box of Oddities, it lands on your phone. It does like a double backflip and then sticks the landing uh, twice twice a week. Yep. I'm going to tangent real quick. Speaking of sticking the landing. Yes. I have been following the journey of Jonathan Van Ness on Instagram. He is learning to ice skate and it is the most glorious thing I've ever seen. His progression, his progress, <laughs> his dedication is mind-blowing and inspiring. And if you haven't had a chance, I would highly recommend following Jonathan Van Ness on Instagram. <laughs> and check out season three of Queer Eyes. Oh my God, I if, love it but, so much! But only if you uh, if you feel like crying. Right. Do yeah. you enjoy weeping hysterically? Yeah. You uh, should. <laughs> okay. No, it's great. It's, it's, it's... So good. Wonderful. Great show. Anyway... Yeah, okay. So, no, I'm done with stick that. The landing stick the landing twice a week. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. 
The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.